Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Uh, just a few minutes ago, the Senate had a vote on whether to permit um, women to have abortions throughout the United States. The vote predictably lost. Uh, the majority leader of the Senate um, said it was going to lose. They knew they didn't have the votes. They didn't even have the votes for a 50-50 tie, which would have been broken obviously, by the Democratic vice president, but under the cloture and filibuster rules, you need you need 60. So the vote was not designed to directly achieve uh, anything for women who need to have abortions. It was obviously designed to make political points for the Democrats, um, to expose the votes uh, on both sides, to allow them to use uh, the overruling of Roe versus Wade if it's in fact overruled as a um, campaign issue in the midterm elections, probably a fairly effective campaign issue, at least in some parts of the country where you have uh, suburban people who are normally Republicans but who don't want their daughters to be relegated to back alley abortions and so will say to themselves, look, better, better vote for Democrats otherwise. Uh, we're back to pre-1973, at least in some states. So uh, the, vote was, the vote was defeated don't know if they would have gotten enough for 60 or even 50 or 51 had they been willing to uh, compromise. There were compromise as is offered by um, Senator Manchin and by the two Republican women who generally support a woman's right to have an abortion. You'll notice I never use choose because I don't like that term because it sounds like there are no issues at stake. It sounds like it's about gay marriage. You can choose to marry a gay man, choose to be gay, be, but, but choosing abortion eliminates the fact that there's something there, uh, a fetus uh, that uh, will be terminated, dead, uh, whatever word you want to use. However you want to debate it, it's different than gay marriage and gay rights and interracial marriage, etc. You've heard me say that before, and I'll, I'll keep saying it. Uh, in any event, uh, they could have try to strike a compromise. Could they have gotten um, seven, eight, nine Republican senators to go along? I doubt it. So I think we're talking about what we lawyers um, describe as moot court, you know, proud of practice, running through arguments. Uh, this was a moot court that mattered, obviously, because we now know how everybody will vote on this. We knew everybody would vote before the vote itself, but now they're on record opposing uh, a woman's right to choose abortion. There was an argument about whether or not the Democrats purposely made their um, uh, legislation, their act, so extreme as to disinvite uh, compromise or whether, in fact, uh, it's the approach, the right approach. Um, disputes about whether the statute would permit abortion till the very end of pregnancy, as you know. Uh, the majority of Americans are kind of around the middle of this issue, favoring abortion in some instances, but not necessarily favoring it in all instances. The, the debate up to now hasn't been a nuanced, balanced debate. It's essentially been between people who want no abortions at all, and if, if they had the power, would actually probably pass legislation that would ban any state from having uh, abortions. Would that be constitutional? I don't think so, but uh, 
with this court, you never know. So on one side, there are those who, if they had the power, would abolish all abortions. On the other side, there are those who, if they had the power, they would permit all abortions. And uh, neither side is close to where the majority of Americans are. The majority of Americans are, they would permit early-term, mid-term abortions, probably not permit uh, very late-term uh, abortions. Uh, viability seems to be an important factor in the minds of uh, many people. That is, uh, to have an abortion, um, do you have to actually kill the fetus, or can you have an early birth where the fetus is taken out and given to willingly adoptive parents? I, I don't know enough about the technology and the medical aspects of this, but I do know enough about the legality of it and the public polling on it, which shows uh, enormous differences. If you did a poll today on whether or not people should have the right to take uh, uh, an abortion pill um, early, very early in the pregnancy, um, within the first couple of weeks, the vast, vast majority of Americans would say yes. If you took a poll asking about the ninth month, the eighth and a half month, probably a lot of Americans would say, no, uh, Americans are a moderate uh, people, uh, a balanced people. Our politicians are not. Our politicians tend toward the extreme. And today, if you're a Democrat in some states and you're perceived as being soft on a woman's right to have an abortion, you could, you could lose even if that ultimately will help Many women get some kind of a right, and the same thing is true on the hard right. If you're perceived as somebody who would allow any abortion, even at the earliest stage with a pill, uh, you're perceived as soft on the right to life. And so, you know, we live in an age where being soft is a vice. Was it Barry Goldwater who talked about that way back in 1964, um, where he talked about extremism? Uh, is a virtue when it's done for liberty and, and moderation is a vice. Uh, I've never believed that. I've often thought that in a democracy as diverse as this one, um, moderation is important, which really brings us to the, to the filibuster. Now, wh what is the filibuster? What was it designed to do? Obviously, it's, its origins mixed. Part of the reason it stayed on the book so long is that Southern senators insisted on the right to filibuster civil rights legislation. They just didn't want equality for African Americans and, and, and white uh, European or other Americans. They just didn't want that. And so the filibuster was a weapon they could use to prevent majority rule. It's been rationalized on other grounds. It's rationalized on the ground the Senate is supposed to be the deliberative body of the legislature, and it shouldn't be passing laws unless there's an overwhelming con consensus. This may sound surprising to you, but I think there is a role for the filibuster, but it's in the wrong place. Um, Congress, the Senate, has done exactly the opposite of what it should have done. It eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court uh, nominees and confirmation of justices, and it permitted it for legislation. It should have done exactly the opposite. We should have a filibuster for nomination of Supreme Court justices. You should need 60 votes. I would make it 67 votes. Uh, you're giving somebody a lifetime job. You're giving them the ability to undemocratically undo uh, legislation. You're giving them the ability to 
make the law, whether they say they're interpreting the law or not. You're giving them extraordinary lifetime appointments, and lifetime appointments are getting longer and longer on both ends. Both ends because presidents are appointing younger and younger justices because they want to have their influence felt well beyond their own lifetimes. And justices are living longer, so they start earlier and they finish later. To get to be appointed like that, first of all, I don't think anybody in a democracy should be appointed for life. Kings, maybe. Popes, okay. But not justices or judges. There should be 20-year terms, at the most, 15 or 20-year terms. You want to settle for 25, I'll, I'll buy it. But not beyond that, not 30, 40, 50 years. That's just not within the concept of democracy. But if you're going to have it, let's at least make sure we have consensus candidates. Let's make sure we have candidates who can get 60 votes. Remember that Scalia got 98 votes. Ginsburg got 92. I don't I'm making up the numbers. But uh, in the 90s, uh, it started to get closer and closer and closer as we politicized the Supreme Court more and more. So I'd be in favor of keeping the filibuster or re reinstating the filibuster for um, judicial appointments, all judicial appointments, but particularly Supreme Court appointments. But I'd be in favor of abolishing it for ordinary legislation. Or legislation, majority should prevail. And if you have 51 votes, yeah, you should be able to get your legislation passed. If you don't like it, vote the bums out and get somebody else in for, for next time. But that's not the way it's happened. It's just political expediency, the votes of the moment. Uh, is what resulted in abolishing the um, uh, filibuster and uh, cloture vote requirement for judicial appointments, big mistake. But maintaining it for ordinary legislation, big mistake, um, backwards, totally backwards. Are we going to ever get back to a time of rationality? No. We may end up abolishing the filibuster for ordinary votes, and I think we'll never restore it for Supreme Court nominations. I, I do think it would be a very good idea. I think we would uh, have a much, much less of a chance of getting extremists on the court if you need 60 votes to um, be confirmed. Um, and when you needed 60 votes to be confirmed, there were more moderates on the court. Now, of course, back in the day, even radicals got the 60 votes, uh, certainly would get the 50 votes. Um, recently, nominees have been approved by, you know, 58, 52 to 50, 48, and 53 to 47, very, very, very close votes. But um, I think restoring the filibuster would, uh, for, for judicial nominees, would incline presidents to appoint more moderate people. Now, I have to tell you, this is very one-sided. Uh, most Democratic presidents, not all, most of the time have appointed moderates. Uh, Stephen Breyer was a moderate. Uh, uh, Merrick Garland uh, was a moderate. Um, uh, maybe that description doesn't fit. Um, the three most recent women uh, appointed to the uh, Supreme Court, um, maybe they're more inclined toward liberalism, um, but by even by today's standards of what constitutes a liberal and radical, the, the three most recent women justices appointed by the Democratic Party, I don't think you can call them radical. Um, would they have gotten 60 votes? I don't know. Would 
Gorsuch have gotten 60 votes, would Barrett have gotten 60 votes, would Kavanaugh have gotten 60 votes? Uh, don't know. Maybe presidents would have appointed different people, and we would have had a more moderate Supreme Court, less predictable. Um, maybe you'd have more justices appointed by Republicans, like um, like uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who is a conservative, clearly a conservative. I remember him when he was a student. Even at Harvard Law School, and then when he was a circuit court judge and a brilliant, brilliant practicing lawyer, he was conservative. He was well known to be uh, conservative, Kavanaugh, uh, and he were very close. Their voting patterns were close, but uh, Roberts became the Chief Justice of the United States. By the way, he's not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That's just his lower title. He's the Chief Justice of the United States, which goes beyond the Supreme Court. He's the head of the judicial branch. He holds an equal place in our legislative constitutional scheme of things with the president and with the Speaker of the House and the president pro temp of the Senate, which is really uh, a symbolic role. But we have three co-equal branches of government, and the chief justice is the head of one of those three equal branches. Only two of the branches have one head, namely the judicial branch and the executive branch. So. Remember, too, that our Constitution wasn't designed to make things easy. Um, you know, it, it's, people forget that when the framers of the Constitution got together and, and, and enacted not only the Constitution but the Bill of Rights, uh, the word democracy was never uttered. The last thing anybody at those conventions or um, in that process wanted was to declare America to be a democracy. No, no, France is a democracy not America. Uh, democracies are parliamentary democracy. You have one branch of government, just the legislative branch. It picks the prime minister. What is the prime minister? He's just the first minister. He's just a minister selected by the parliament. And uh, the judiciary, until very, very recently, even in England, was part of the legislative branch. The House of Lords was uh, part of the legislature. It was essentially the equivalent, in many ways, of the Supreme Court of the United States. So we were never intended to be a democracy. If we were intended to be a democracy, we wouldn't have a Senate that gives uh, the same number of senators to Wyoming as to California, which means that every citizen of Wyoming has multiple vote on issues than the citizens of California. We, we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't necessarily have a bicameral legislature to two houses, one with two-year terms, one with six-year terms. Six years sounds to me a little long, but that's the way the framers did it. We certainly wouldn't have an electoral college. What could be more undemocratic than the electoral college? Uh, twice in the last uh, uh, 20 years, um, we've had people become president who lost um, the popular vote. And um, so uh, uh, if you want a real democracy, Go to Canada, uh, go to England, maybe go to France. But the United States, it's a republic. As Benjamin Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. A republic, which means a strong executive voted on by the people, not directly, but through uh, a bevy of platonic guardians called electors. And, you know, in the day when the Constitution was enacted, the electors actually decided who should be president. They thought about it. Who would be the best president? Would Andrew Jackson, that, that general from, from the South uh, and the West, 
with no real education, should he be the president or should the son of our former President John Adams from Massachusetts, Harvard, you name it, should he be president? And the electors said, no, it should be, it should be John Adams. And, uh, um, and uh, that's not democracy. That's uh, you know, elitism, and we are elitists. Um, if we were a democracy, would we have said women can't vote? Well, Britain was a democracy, and it said women can't vote. Switzerland didn't allow women to vote until my lifetime. Um, so we've had democracies without women voting. Um, would they have said that uh, slaves are three-fifths people for purposes of counting uh, their votes? Would we have tolerated property ownership as a criteria for voting? What could be less democratic than saying to people, you work hard, uh, you have a job, but you don't have any property, and therefore you can't vote. Only people who own property uh, can vote. Nothing could be more undemocratic than, than that. And, of course, we've cured most of those things. We now allow any citizen to vote, and there are some states now that would try to allow non-citizens to vote, permanent residents and others. Um, nobody's yet moved toward illegal um, immigrants uh, or aliens uh, voting. There are some who would probably advocate that. Um, some, of course, will give them driver's licenses and give them other benefits. And Okay, uh, that's a different issue, but in, in a democracy, generally, citizens vote, and, um, and the question is, uh, do all citizens vote? And at the time of the framing, no, they didn't. At the time of the framing, too, it was hard to pass laws. Um, you needed to have financial laws, economic laws, or originate in the House. They had to vote on that, then it had to get through the Senate. Uh, ultimately, the filibuster cloture was added. It has to be signed by the president. You can overcome a presidential veto by a supermajority vote. Um, not easy. And then it has to be affirmed by the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, at the time of the Constitution, it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court had any power to overrule legislative actions, but in Mulberry versus Madison, the Supreme Court said, yep, we do have that power. We're taking it uh, to ourselves. So we're the ones who will decide ultimately whether laws, federal, state, uh, are consistent with the Constitution. And that's been the way our country has, has operated, and, and um, we saw a little of that today with the, the Senate vote. Now, for a national right to have abortion bill passed, you would need 60 votes in the Senate, a majority in the House. You'd get the majority in the House. Um, signature by the president, you'd get that. And then it would have to be sustained by the Supreme Court. Now, what's the theory under which you can pass national, national uh, pro-abortion legislation? After all, health and safety are relegated to the states um, and not to the federal Government. The federal government has taken on a lot of health and safety power, obviously vaccination, uh, Federal Trade Commission, various regulations, but uh, in general the states control health. Now, of course, with contagious diseases, there's no such thing as a state. Contagious diseases cross state borders. Uh, but uh, the issue of, of abortion, remember, pregnancy is not contagious. So one can argue that the uh, issue of whether you should allow an abortion should be left only to the states and that the federal legislature, Congress, should not have any power over that. Now, those who advocate federal legislation point to the Commerce Clause. 
after all, if Texas doesn't allow abortion and California does, you're going to see traveling between Texas and California. Is that enough to invoke the Commerce Clause? Now, in general, since the New Deal, the Commerce Clause has covered a lot of evils and a lot of goods, and it's been used widely to uh, cover things that have very, very little impact on commerce. But the court has struck down uh, legislation uh, that has been passed under the Commerce Act saying it's not sufficiently involved in commerce, spousal abuse, uh, or uh, cases where uh, husbands attack wives or lovers attack each other, uh, struck down. Um, not sufficient nexus to commerce, even though the argument was made that when men attack their spouses, their women, their, their wives, uh, the wives often run away and run to different states, and therefore there isn't interstate commerce. Nexus, uh, court said, nah, not enough. So um, uh, there's a long road uh, between today and passing national legislation giving a woman the right to choose abortion. Now, we have those who are ready to say, yeah, there should be national legislation, but on the other side, there should be national legislation prohibiting any state from allowing abortion. Would that be permitted? Would that be constitutional? First, I don't think it's ever going to get enacted. I don't think you'll ever get um, a Congress to ban all abortions in every state to say that New York and California cannot allow uh, their citizens uh, to have an abortion even at the earliest uh, uh, stages. But if you believe in the right to life, and if you believe that the fetus is a person uh, entitled to the protection of the Constitution, maybe you can support uh, a national ban on abortion. I would never, never support that. I can't imagine that uh, you'd get a majority, even with the Republicans, and the Republicans will probably win, Pretty, pretty overwhelmingly uh, in the next uh, election, uh, congressional election, maybe not as overwhelmingly after Roe versus Wade is overruled as they would have before, but even if, if they do, uh, first of all, it'll never happen during the Biden administration because he'll veto it and you'll never get enough votes to overcome that veto. Uh, but let's assume that there is a sweep in 2024, and at that point in time, the Republican control of the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Supreme Court, and they're going to control the Supreme Court for a good number of years because the justices on the right are young and uh, can serve for many, many, many years. Um, would a Republican-controlled government actually enact a law prohibiting anybody from having an abortion? We'd be one of the very few countries in the world, certainly one of the very few democracies in the world that would have gone that far. I don't think so. Is it possible? Of course, anything's, anything's possible. But um, realistically, no matter how overwhelmingly one party controls, if the majority of people are strongly against it, it's not going to happen. And a majority of Americans today, and I suspect in 2024 and 2026, will be against an absolute prohibition on all abortions. You know, there are extremists who say pills should be prohibited, criminalized. Uh, it should be a crime to have a woman travel from Texas to um, California to have an abortion. There are extremists who take those uh, views. And, um, and there are some who, if they had the votes, they would do it. Don't think they have the votes. Don't think they will do it. And don't think a party who did it would be reelected. So 
That's my take. Uh, let's go now, before we have questions, let's go to my sponsor. So, do you own a small business and need help in growing it? Then AnthemSoftware.com is your one-stop solution. Anthem Software helps small businesses all over America find, serve, and keep more customers' profitability by providing world-class CRM software and results-focused marketing services. Your business will not only grow, but dominate in this highly competitive business modern world. That's AnthemSoftware.com. Every business has a song. Let AnthemSoftware.com help you sing yours profitably and successfully. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to schedule your free demo of this amazing solution. So let's turn. Today we have a lot of thoughtful questions. Um, um, maybe it was a function of having a thoughtful conversation with you in my, my last show, but here's one. Professor, could you elaborate on Justice Roberts trying to create a moderate middle? I thought that judges are supposed to be impartial deciders of the law. Roberts seems to be worried about the legacy of the court. Most everyone I read says the leak will be a blemish on his watch. How does this work, and can one be a good judge and make decisions based on how the court, under his chief justice status, will be judged by history? It's a really, really good question, really thoughtful and intelligent question. And the premise is correct. I have no doubt that Chief Justice Roberts, who I've known for many years and like very much as a, as a person, uh, cares deeply about the integrity of the court, about the reputation of the court, about the legacy of the court, and about his own legacy. I think less about his own legacy than about the court as an institution. You know, when you've been a justice, you get to love the court. Even as a law clerk, I really admired the court. And myself, I would never leak anything. It would be outrageous to leak anything. When I wanted to publish a memo that I had written about the death penalty, I got permission from my justice to do it. It was a memo for me to him, and he gave me permission, and I did publish it in a book. It was only his opinion, nobody else's opinion, and he gave me the right to do it. And, uh, it was, a, it was a, a memo doing historical research on the cruel and unusual punishment provision of the Constitution and how it relates to the death penalty under the Eighth Amendment. So there's no doubt in my mind that Roberts cares deeply about that. Um, should he? Um, shouldn't he decide every case on the merits? I think he should. But there are going to be cases that are very, very close. The one that he did the switch in time on, of course, was Obamacare. He cast the deciding vote in favor of Obamacare. It was a stretch. It was a stretch um, about it being a tax or a penalty and all of that. And he did fool around with some of the words and came to a result which probably was very popular among Americans, uh, giving them the health care they needed. And Obamacare has been very helpful to many Americans, including members of my own uh, uh, family. So I cheer him for doing it. Was he performing his judicial function? Well, one way of answering that is to say that the Chief Justice of the United States has a slightly different role than other judges. He's the head of the judicial branch. And as such, he does have legitimate concern with preserving the integrity of the court. And it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of how far you go, how far you depart from what the law is. And I don't think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has uh, departed uh, from his dual roles, one as a decider of the law and the other as the keeper 
of the court's uh, integrity. But it's a great question, the kind of question I would put to students at, at Harvard Law School when I was back there teaching. Another one. Boy, this information nonsense has public school dumbing down of America written all of it. The founders knew we have a natural right to free speech, and the First Amendment only assures the federal government has the power to protect that natural right. All right, let me, let me tell you something. You're not going to like this. There are no natural rights. The Declaration of Independence was dead wrong. There are no rights that are endowed to us by a creator. There are no rights that grow out of nature. Those are all myths. Rights grow out of wrongs. We recognize wrongs done, and then we, human beings, create rights to overcome them. Was there a natural right uh, not to be a slave? Well, if so, we sure didn't recognize it for the first couple of hundred years of uh, colonial America. And then early America, up through the 14th Amendment, uh, it took a civil war to change it. That wasn't natural. No natural right. We understood slavery was wrong, and so we corrected it and abolished slavery. Is there a natural right of women to vote? Well, if so, we didn't recognize it for a long, long time. But we saw how wrong it was to keep women from voting, and so we enacted the women's suffrage uh, amendment. Is there a natural right for 18-year-olds to vote as distinguished from 21-year-olds? Of course not, but we saw that it was better to have 21-year-olds uh, not be the, 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 the cutoff, but 18. So, so, so we voted there. There are no natural rights. Rights don't go out of nature. Nature is neutral. Um, nature doesn't answer questions of right or wrong. Uh, nature does what it does. And so uh, I wrote a whole book about this. Um, it's called Where Do Rights Come From? And they come from experience. They come from a recognition of wrongs. So why did the framers of the Declaration of Independence talk about natural rights? Because they had nothing else to talk about. They couldn't talk about legislative rights. They didn't have any. They couldn't talk about constitutional rights. There was no constitution. So they had to make up natural rights. What's the natural right uh, natures? You know, uh, Jefferson knew what he was doing. And then when we established a country, suddenly there's no more talk of natural rights. Now you need the House to introduce the legislation, the Senate to pass it, uh, the President not to veto it, the Supreme Court to sustain it. What's natural about that? That's institutional. So once a country gets established, goodbye natural rights. They were always a phony, fake concept. We have no natural rights. God didn't give us any rights. Go through the Bible. Go through the Torah. Are there rights in the Torah? No, there are obligations. There are wrongs. No, there's no right to speak out against your parents. No, kabed et avicha Honor! Listen to your father and your mother. There's no rights in the Bible. Uh, there's no rights mostly in, in religion. There are obligations. Uh, rights come from human experiences. And so... The whole concept of a natural right, I understand, it's in the Declaration of Independence. I have the Declaration of Independence hanging on my wall, as you saw when we did my tour of the House. I love the Declaration of Independence, but it's not a law. It's not the law. It's a moral, revolutionary, treasonous document, which I support. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and so when you talk about natural rights, uh, I think you're, 
you're talking about a construct that was used to establish the United States but has no continuing viability. Because if nature gave you rights, who defines them? Who defines which rights you get from nature? Uh, everybody disagrees. People say there's a natural right to life. People say there's a natural right to, cho to choice. Natural right to have an abortion. Natural right for the fetus not to be aborted. How do we resolve that? We resolve that through institutions. We do referendum. We do legislation. We do judicial actions. We do constitutional amendments. There's nothing in nature that tells us what to do. Nothing. And so let's put aside this issue of natural rights. I'm going to get a lot of letters about this, but I'm sticking to my guns. No natural rights. See you next week.